Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation coaching course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. And we're back. Pat and I are back with part two in our Mass 2 series. You can check out part one, which will be linked up in the show notes. So if you haven't already listened to part one, you probably want to go back to listen to that before you listen to part two right here. On this episode, Pat and I discuss what's new with Pat. We talk about Pat's trip to China at the end of last year. This is a must listen. Uh, We get into Pat's top seven pieces of advice to maximize mTOR upregulation in the quest to gain as much muscle mass and strength as possible. We also discuss concentric versus eccentric hypertrophy adaptations to the heart and how mass 2 could potentially lead to an increase in both and thus increase the heart's rate pressure product. This was an outstanding episode with Pat, guys, and I hope you really, really enjoy part two. Davidson, let's yes, dance. Sir. Let's dance again, brother. Here we are, part two. So where we left off on the uh, first episode, well, first of all, that's a bit ignorant to just jump straight into it, but I, I like, I'm, I'm one of these guys when I listen to a podcast, I'm just like straight to the end of the end. I just don't want to hear about, yep. you, don't want hear about your sponsors, n- don't want to hear about No that. foreplay, huh? No yeah, foreplay. No foreplay. Just fucking <laughs> take it all off, get into the room, we're going to go. But I suppose actually, before, before I do that, how are you? How, how have you been since we last spoke? It was a month ago. You, you, were, you, were, you were in China, you did a great seminar at um, Microphones. With uh, Dr. Yep. Chijan and Bill Hartman, so maybe just uh, give the listeners a, uh, a little update what happened since the last time we spoke, and then we're we're popping straight into part two. 
it's it's definitely been one of the more like whirlwind like months of my life in terms of of just kind of like there were really like three big seminars that I did since since uh, the last time we talked and uh, yeah the first one well it wasn't really a seminar but I was part of a um, a conference that was in China it was the Suning second annual sports performance. Like I, I don't know exactly what the title is, but just like some some big international Chinese conference that um, was probably I mean I definitely have never never done a talk on a stage that looked the way that it did. Like it was it looked like a like some kind of professional stage. Like you know it was probably um, I don't know what unit of measure most of the listeners use for for distances. I'm American, so I still use feet. So. Uh, it was probably like an 80 foot long stage. So, you know, what, what would that be? Like 20, 30 meters long. Like it was massive. You know, the, the screen was the whole length of the stage. Uh, there was somewhere around like 800 to 1200 people in the audience. So it was like, um, it felt like the most professional environment that I've ever presented in. Um, and there were a lot of other like really big time presenters over there. Um, you know, Kyle Kiesel, Craig Liebenson were a couple of the other guys. And, um, you know, they, it, you kind of know that you've, you've sort of made it to another level in some ways professionally if you get a chance to, to go over there and present with some of those guys in China because they've, they've really done a great job of, um, of bringing the best and brightest of, at least from, from the guys that they've brought over from the United States, you know, the Boyles, the Weingroffs, the Hartmans, the Michael Mullins. The Liebensons, those those kind of guys are are who they bring over. Um, people like Robert Lardner. So to to be included in that is um, is always really uh, it's a nice feeling. It's a feeling of achievement. So it was um, it was a nutty trip. You know, I was kind of telling you some of the it, while it was extremely professional and like big time. It's just kind of like there's some definite culture differences that lead to communication problems where it's like. I, I had this feeling of like, I don't know what's going on. Um, and, <laughs> and that's sort of a, a tough thing to, to have, uh, when is, you, is when that not just, inner, your, is that just not your daily life anyway? You know, I, I think that like my wife has no idea how I get through life in terms of <laughs> like, I mean, she, she really does see me as being a very disorganized and, and she's looking at me right now, but, um, you know, it's, it's like, uh, I would not describe my system as, as conventional, but I know what's going on within it, which that, is all that really matters. And that's to me. all that matters. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I'm, I'm, whenever I actually have to deal with, with other people in logistics, I'm usually pretty good at communicating, um, to ensure that like we're on the same page and like, mm. uh, I want to reduce your stress and increase the comfort of, of what your expectations should be. Got to say, Paris I mean, I, I try to cover those bases. So this was the opposite of that. So it was just, you know, like I was saying, the, uh, the day of the presentation, they told me that, that what I had put together, they didn't want to hear. So I had to make up a presentation off the top of my head, uh, a two hour deal in, in China and have it translated to the audience. And so that was a bit stressful and like, uh, out of the ordinary. But, you know, it's like it, it comes together. You, you, you make it happen. Um, but that was, I mean, it's hard to summarize the entire experience. Uh, it, it ranged from, like, like 
the, the, the sign at the airport for the person that was picking me up that was supposed to identify me just being like that. How does that sign? How is that me like on that sign? Um, you know, it, it was, it ha- did not have my name or anything remotely close to my name on it. And, uh, and it was just a picture of Mr. Potato Head. I mean, what, what were they trying? <laughs> I gotta, I gotta send it over to you. But it was like, you know, I'm like the one person there that looks like me. There's no one else in China that looks remotely like me. So this person should have kind of recognized me because I'm, I'm, I'm standing like maybe 15 feet away from them for, for half an hour trying to communicate with the, uh, person that was my contact person via email. And it's like, I'm the one dude that's like a, a Caucasian individual that's, like over 200 pounds that's in this area. Like there's no mistaking me. I, I don't look like anybody else. So it was like when, when all of a sudden, like I got the picture of what the sign for me looked like, I saw it. It was like right in front of me. I was like, Oh, I, I think you're for me. And, uh, and luckily they were, and they actually drove me to the, to the right hotel. Um, you know, there's, there's so many side stories with the China trip ranging from, from being propositioned for prostitution inside the hotel to, um, you know, one of the, one of the dishes that was, uh, available to eat in the restaurant was braised small cock, uh, to, you know, just like a million different things that are hilarious. But, uh, you know, let's just say it was, it was, it was a bizarre trip that was, I, to me, that's like what, what life is all about. Let's get it real weird. And, uh, and you have a lot of good stories that you can pull from in the future. Uh, but you know, I got back on, um, you know, a Saturday, uh, I had a, a day to kind of decompress. Then, um, you know, our, our mutual friend Ben house arrived in, in the mm. city on that Tuesday. Um, and Dr. We were, B. yeah, we were, we were presenting together at uh drive four ninety five, Don Saladino's place in Manhattan. And, um, you know, I think that went really well. We, we did like a, a middle of the day kind of thing because that's when trainers actually have a little, have their time off. Yeah. So we went from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Nice. And, uh, you know, I did my part on biomechanics, a little bit of program design and, um, and just sort of like rationalizations of how to coach the things that we all do. Like that's, mm. and that's, that's what I like to talk about a lot is like, I don't do anything necessarily from a exercise selection standpoint that's radically different from anybody else, but the way that I, I coach it and cue it and the things that I'm looking for might be a little bit different than, than what you're, you're currently doing. Um, and, and I think that those things might help you with, with people that are either A, in pain or B, looking for like sort of, you know, uh, whatever those tiny changes are that change you from, from great to elite. Um, and then Ben, of, of course, did his, his, uh, unbelievable job with, with all things nutrition and lifestyle tying together with that for, for whatever you want to call this stuff, wellness yeah. or optimization or, uh, being authentically human to the, to the greatest degree that you can. Uh, and then, then, um, you know, that same week, last weekend, was uh was the reckoning that took place at Michael Ranfone's place and that was myself, Bill Hartman and Doug Kachijian. And I think that um I think that the attendees got their money's worth. You know, I, I don't think like all none of us held back. I think it was 
you know, that, that name, the reckoning was kind of like, you know, we're going to bring it together and we're going to dispel some, some things that maybe people hold as sacred cows, but it's just going to be like, here's the way that I think about everything. You know, this is, this is sort of my approach to, to like, you know, what, whether you want to call it a scientific method or, or just really breaking down the appropriate way to analyze information. Um, and then, then the breakouts were, you know, really that I, I tackled the brain, uh, Bill tackled the thorax and Doug demonstrated the way that you can use exercise, like just big rock training exercises. If done appropriately, there's really no need for things that you might want to call corrective exercises or those sorts of things. You know, every exercise has the potential to turn on the right things from a motor control standpoint. You just have to really know what you're doing and what to look for. So I, it was, you know, none of us had really shared our slides with each other prior to it. So you never know, like, am I off on an island and am I going to be like the weirdo at this presentation? But the three could not have integrated better, I don't think, if we had, like, you know, been working day in and day out together to try to accomplish that. It was very much seamless on that front. And, um, you know, for me, I felt like I got the biggest steal of all, like just simply being able to hear those other two guys present for free, you know, since I'm, I'm kind of attending, so I don't have to pay for a seat. Uh, but that's like worth its weight in gold. I, I, um, I was, I was, I took a tremendous amount away. You know, I, I, I was coaching things, differently and being able to analyze people differently immediately from that and getting better results from, from what those guys talked about. So I, I think that, um, I think that when the video from that comes out, that, that a lot of people are going to get a tremendous amount of benefit from that, that seminar. And I know we're going to do a second one, um, pretty soon as well. And I hope it becomes a, a, a reoccurring thing. Definitely looking forward to that. Absolutely. Be putting that into the show notes when it comes live. The video, those yourself and those two genies. I'd say it was a great, great day. Great, it looked great, so it did in the old social medias. But uh, definitely, I can't wait for that video to come out. You know, I think uh, I think Mike Ranfone is is really separating himself from yeah. pretty much everybody yeah. in terms of the the con ed that he delivers. The shit he puts together, like everything over the last like two or three years, I'm like, is that Ranfone's face? That Ranfone's face is like this guy just just fucking rolling it out. Yep, you know he's. He's a great guy. Um, he's just the, the the most no bullshit guy I've ever met. Nice. And um, you know he really he's just somebody that cares, and you know he's not afraid to take. Like I, I think that I'm still a fairly new person out there. Like you know I'm not established as like you know what you're gonna get if you hire Boyle to come and talk. You kind of know what you're gonna get with Gray Cook, somebody like that. Like these these guys that. Um, been there done that still doing it on that front mm. so it's almost like well what are you going to get with this davidson guy like this I, I don't really know what his deal is but it's it's um you know i appreciate ranfone kind of giving me my 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 kind of shot there at um at being able to to start the process of of putting my stuff out there for for a lot of really high quality people and um you know i, I i'm always looking for things to lead to other opportunities. And, and I, I think that, that, that that'll take place from this. So, um, yeah, I'm excited about it from a personal standpoint and, and, uh, yeah, just, just getting the opportunity to kind of 
share the stage with, with someone like Bill Hartman and Doug Kachigian is like, that's unbelievable for me. Like that, that really, that means so much. And, um, it just like, you know, I've put a, I've put a lot of work in over decades and, and it feels like it's, it's, it's coming together. There's like a level of self-actualization that I feel like is, mm. is actually taking place. And, nice. um, you know, it's, it's been, it's just been a long road, a long time coming. And cause everybody just sees the final product, you know, that's, that's all they ever see, but they, nobody sees like, you know, the, the years of just spending time in a library, um, uh, 15 years ago, every day in and day out. And, um, and just staying after for hours upon hours, trying to put lectures together my first couple of years of teaching. And the, the grind is not visible. You know, the only thing people see is like this, the, the, the guy now being able to talk about topics or write a book or something like that. And it's like, you know, it's, it's built on decades of, of struggle to get to this now. It's so it's, um, yeah, if anybody thinks like, oh, this guy just kind of popped out immediately and he's a, a, a new flash on the scene, it's like, Maybe from, from that perspective, but it's not even remotely close from the time that's, that's gone into getting here. What are you going to get with this Davidson guy? A whole universe of holy fucking shit. That's what you're going to get. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I, what I hope, you know, but. Um, My God. And yeah, the, the library, it's like that Dan Fat always refers to it as, yeah, before the internet, I was back in the stacks. He also was the stacks in the library. Yep. Studying glycolysis. Step six, uh, that's where the redox potential happens. Uh, NAD turns into NAD+. Mm, it all makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, so I, I, I don't know. I, I think, um, you know, Doug, Doug, you, Doug talked a little bit about the word fragilista. And um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you've heard that term, but no. it's, it's, it's a great one. And, but I like um, it. But I like it. It, I it, it, it is. You know, it, but it's, it's sort of like, it's it's a tough one to def, to define quickly, but there's some great articles on that word. Nick, it came from a book that he referenced as well, but it's it's sort of like uh, people that maybe like the kid that just graduated from college that expects themselves to be able to like open up Mike Boyle strength and conditioning day one out of the shoots and be able to just run that thing and be a millionaire within five years and like be world famous for for this. And it's like, uh, kid. Do you, do you know how long that guy's been studying and doing this stuff? And like, he's forgotten more information than you'll probably ever learn. There is one, um, out, there is one outlier to that. And that's Eric Cressy. He fucking done that. Yeah. Yeah. But I bet, I bet you that the, the amount of time and work that he put in, oh, yeah. and even that short amount of time exceeded yeah. what a lot of other people, you know, it's not about necessarily time. It's about like output and efficiency and oh, all yeah, that yeah, kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, but yeah. he just, he, you know, he accumulated that like, just like, he just fucking like yeah yeah he's a workaholic the, you know, anyway. yeah the fragilista expects like to be able to listen to a one sentence explanation of a complex scientific topic and then to just fully grasp it um, you know it's the thing that that scientists have been complaining about with reporters for years is it's like do you want Einstein to be able to explain relativity relativity in like a two sentence bite sized version for your like your Time Magazine article, it doesn't work that way. Some things are, in fact, complex mm. and require deliberacy and detail 
to actually understand and you just you cannot have it any other way and this mindset of actually wanting to have complexity reduced to a level where it's no longer relative uh you know keep things simple but no simpler than they have to be and some things you can't just explain in a in a in a blip you know yeah. it it takes much more than that uh so i i think that that was that's sort of, I would say, like the common thread of what the reckoning was all about. Mm. And, um, and I think that our, just culturally, like Western culture is becoming more and more fragilista based. Um, yeah, where it's, it's, Mark- it goes back to instant gratification. I mean, but like, yep. the, the generation that's coming about now, like the millennials and every, everyone after that, it's, it's the, it's the environment they're born into. And as me and you know, epigenetics, baby, environment and organism. But yeah. uh, it's funny you said that because that's exactly what Bill's been saying about uh, all gain, no pain. He's like, people would ask me, like, well, what can I do now? He's like, this is not a five-minute conversation. It is, in fact, a book, and that's why I wrote the book. Yeah, exactly. You know, I had a, a, a friend um, ask me yesterday, hey, you know, I was uh, I was deadlifting, and my I feel my right neck acting up. What can I do about it? And it's like, um, I can't just answer that, like, off the fly. Like, I would actually have to put you on a table i'd have to see what joint actions you have and you don't have i'd have to get a sense of like you know tests that are are showing me the strategies that your body is using to accomplish tasks like what muscles are you using to move what joints at what time to try to accomplish some some basic tasks and and if i can gain insight into you know the way that your neuromuscular system is organizing itself right now I think I might have some clues into what you can do, but it's it's not a one size fits all thing. It's sort of like I'm I'm trying to weave together my best picture of your nebulous multi system uh, self organizing biological. Of a, you know what I mean? Like there's there's no quick explanation that can that can be of use for this situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not gonna lie. The, I just got to the stage with people. I was just like. I don't know. Even though, like, I could have sat there and explained to him, I was like, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's boggles my mind. Yeah. But uh, listen, I have, a, I have one hour here, and I want to get yep. rocking and okay, rolling so on we'll, this stuff. We'll, we'll hammer. Yep. Yeah. So uh, even though, like, I could, I, I think, I think for me, for me and you, because we could just like talk for hours and hours. I think we need. It's, it's like, it's like mass. We need to put time on it. So, like, Parkinson's law. So we can get right down to it, you know. See how confines. Pers- yeah, exactly. Constraints. Con- constraints led approach. See, we're all about dynamic systems theory. Here's so we are. Yes, sir. All right, right. So we left off the last episode. We were talking about ways to optimize mTOR, and you wrote in seven ways in the book, which I thought were excellent. So do you maybe just want to go over those seven ways that, I've, and 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 you also worded in that these are seven ways of how I would currently go about. Uh, optimizing mTOR. Now, and also, this book was written six, seven, eight months ago at this stage, so you might yep. have you might have new information. But let's allude to that. Sure, and and I like to start these things off, and I appreciate you setting me up for it with that George Box quote of "All models are wrong, but some are useful," mm-hmm. and I think that's uh, that's something to always keep in mind because yeah, what I'm presenting here is kind of a model, so it's it's based on like kind of theory that I'm aware of regarding how these things work. And, and it is hopefully of use and like you can't have anything be useful unless you give some explanation about how or why it works that way. So, um, these are, these were kind of my seven. It seems as though like why mTOR? Well, if we go into 
the physiology of how you would add muscle tissue. It's going to be yeah. transcription and translation. And what has been pointed out from the information that I'm aware of is that translation is the rate limiting factor mm. for protein synthesis. We covered that. And, uh, we covered that in depth in our last conversation. Just so you yep. Yeah. Just as kind of like a a, yeah, yeah. a a refresher, and then within translation, it seems as though the ability to activate and access this mTOR yeah. or mTOR complex one pathway is the the rate limiting factor inside the rate limiting factor. Uh, it's it's kind of the ghost in the machine. So it's it's kind of like. Can I just ask a real quick digression? Yeah. What, what then? What what's pathway two then? Like what's to do with that? Because I know everyone's like it's, it's pathway one seems to be what does what's two about? I I'm, I'm not I I actually don't know to tell mm. you the truth. No, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just something I need to look into. Yeah, it's, no, it's one of those things. I know that there's a couple other ways to to get to the um, the process of 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 ultimately activating the entire translational yeah. machinery. It's just this seems to be it's almost like uh, it's probably like compensatory strategies versus the easiest strategy to utilize like if if the organism is 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 forced if the if its hand is forced it'll probably find a way mm. i always kind of think of like the jeff goldblum statement in jurassic park like uh, nature will find a way yeah <laughs> but but this is this is kind of like the most common pathway that that you would go through and and probably the biggest bang pathway for uh you know protein synthesis so i i, I did give these these seven steps on how to uh, you know, maximize the mTOR pathway. So uh, number one would be to have some decent amount of oxidative fitness. Mm. So that's, that's, and we talked a little bit about that the last time, uh, I believe, in, in terms of just, um, you know, uh, like from a redox uh, perspective, like I want to reduce the number of electrons, just free electrons that are that are flying around so that I'm not having like this radical oxidative uh, stuff taking place. Yeah. You know, it's a great it's a great way to like destroy intracellular apparatus tissues like in that way. Like, um, you know, that's that's kind of what we know about sort of like dying and disease processes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is that there's there's free electrons that are just leaking out of the mitochondrial respiratory protein yeah. tunneling system. So it's it's the same thing. I want. I, I need to break cells down uh, to rebuild them, but I, I also I want to do that. It's almost like the stress response. I want a quick, short stress response that I then uh, get out of and, mm. and return to a chronic um, parasympathetic low stress environment. Yeah. I don't want constant moderate stress. I don't want constant uh, levels of, of electrons just leaking out into areas where they shouldn't be wreaking havoc on the system and, yeah. and causing oxidation of things. To, so dose, dose response is key. Again, the, the difference between medicine and poison is that dosage. And just another, yeah. another thing too is, uh, I just listened to Jack Ruse there and I'm saying people can think of the thing of Jack, but the more science I learned, the more it seems to make sense. But he's saying that the next big thing is going to be just the mitochondria. He's like, everyone's being like genes, genetics, genetics, DNA, the nucleus. He's like, it's going to turn out to yep. be mitochondria. Like, cause mitochondrial disease is like, it seems to be like behind every single chronic generated disease. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you that an, an organism comes together from the matching of mitochondrial, uh, the mitochondrial genome with the nucleic genome, yeah, you know, and, and that's really like, 
Uh, and that's sort of the difference between the lifespan of a pigeon and a rat because they're both the same size and they both have the same resting metabolic rate. Mm. But a pigeon lives to be about 35 years old, whereas a rat lives like five to seven years or something like that. Um, so it's, it's literally that, uh, the degree to which the, the symbiosis of the mitochondrial genome and the nucleic genome match is much higher in an avian species as compared to a rodent. Now, it also leads to, like, rats are able to reproduce more because they, um, they don't need as high a level of matching. So they're able to have more of their species constantly out there, but they just simply don't live as long. It's just two different strategies that nature uses. Yeah. Whereas the avian, they're, it's much more difficult for them to have a offspring that actually survives where the, there's matching between the two. But the greater the degree of matching, the greater the degree that oxidative fitness needs to be present in that species in mm -hmm. order for it to be able to, to survive the way that it should survive. And amongst primates, you know, humans have the most difficult time reproducing uh, in large part because we have the greatest need for oxidative fitness to survive based on the way that our, our species really yeah. handled as environmental pressures. You know, we needed to have those persistent hunting strategies in place, which required a tremendous amount of mitochondria. So it seems as though... I think we talked about this a little bit, the differences between health and performance last time. Yeah, we did. Like yeah. that, you know, that, um, that in a lot of cases, performance and, and you can think about that as almost like neuromuscular performance with high, high velocity, high force type of sports and activities. Sometimes there's a divergence between health and performance. Yeah. But at the same time, you probably, uh, you need enough health to be present to be able to drive performance, yeah. um, you know, and I, and I see this as like, I need you to have enough health present because I need you to not have tissues constantly breaking down from electrons flying all over the place. And I also need you to have a high enough level of oxidative fitness so that you can inhibit tissues after you activate them. Um, that seems to be something that a lot of people talk about, whether you're referring to like McGill and he uses that term pulse of yeah. like, I can, uh, excite tissue and then inhibit tissue rapidly back and forth or Cal Dietz talks about that a lot or Charlie Francis talked about that a lot and physical therapy stuff that's it, they're usually talking about how inhibition is so critical from an electrochemical perspective um, and I, I, I heard Joel James say and sorry to interrupt you I heard yep. Joel James say one time that the more mitochondria and the better that they function the better uh, an individual is at rela relaxation in terms that's of the of, yep, that's of the same circles. thing I'm talking about. That's but what, exactly what, is, what, I'm talking what is about. the mechanism behind that? As well as we like, I've heard like things like it's calcium and the release coming from the sacrophagic reticulum and the rate that that happens at it goes in and out quicker. I'll or, be honest with you, I've never gotten a good explanation regarding yeah, that. Either way, um, you know, like from what I understand, like tone of muscle. Resting tone is largely yeah. driven through like uh, the gamma system of the of the neural neural uh, equipment, and it's like uh, the more that muscle spindles are ramping up in their afferent presentation back to the central nervous system, you're going to have a gamma system talk back from an efferent standpoint, and that gamma system, the more it's activated, 
is going to be increasing resting tone. Um, so, and, and I don't know any connections about that. I'm still waiting for someone to be able to, to point out some, some peer reviewed research on that front. Um, and I'm not discounting the, the, the fact or the accuracy of people's statements on that. And I'm actually alluding to that in this point number one on, on being able to allow the mTOR pathway to, to work. My, my thought is that, um, you know, it's, it's probably easier for tissue to exist at rest if it's working in an oxidative from us, from that standpoint. Yeah. We, um, we, we touched on the last day too, yep. because in terms of, in terms of just like longevity, um, we just spoke with even just like a lay person. So like if a lay yep. person is in more of a sympathetic state and they're in chronic postures that are, that are keeping sort of a chronic low level sympathetic state in the system, you're going to get yep. like more, uh, hypertonicity in the tissues, lent tension relations will be off, more occlusion of, you know, the vessels, more of an anaerobic environment, more reliance of glycolysis, glycolysis for energy, more oxidative potential rather than being able to, uh, make ATP through the, through the, yeah. Krebs, through the Krebs cycle and then into the electron transport chain and be more oxidative and therefore lot more longevity because less hydrogen buildup, less acidity, less free radical damage. We kind of touched yeah. on that. So it's almost like who knows? Like I, I think that the polyvagal theory is, mm. is super interesting and in that it's kind of saying that, you know, when the system is under low stress and it's doing really, really well, uh, the, there's the two, there's three branches of autonomics. You've got the mammalian vagal system, sympathetics, and the reptilian vagal system. And, um, you know, it's, I, I, I'm thinking, and I think I mentioned this last time where RPR may be, they, they talk about how their mechanisms lie in that, in that realm, which I, I don't understand. But, um, you know, what, what it got me thinking is that maybe, Maybe it's almost this George Box notion of that, like models apply on a lot of levels, and yeah. and and maybe we don't have the best way to explain them yet. Maybe maybe my model's wrong, but maybe it's useful. So I've been thinking that kind of like even local tissues or specific muscles might operate in a similar way, where the behavior of those muscles is is either somewhere like a, a like approach withdrawal type of things, and if I have muscles that are able to exist oxidatively at rest, they're probably in like an approach type of behavior and they're able to remain relaxed and pliable and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and they can probably downshift and revert back to more primitive strategies, which may be more in the realm of tonicity uh, from like a survival standpoint. But then if that's not working for them, then they probably fall back even further in time to like a freezing response or death feigning where they're just like mush and just won't respond to anything. So it makes you wonder then about someone like yourself who works in New York, you might, you might get more of these type of clients, but when you get those like really highly strong, sympathetically wired people, and then you're like, I'm going to like fucking like lash these out now with training. And it's just like, should that be really what I should do with them? You know, in terms of like, yeah, because, because like, you know, they're already chronically sympathetic and then like, we are like, well, acute sympathetic, you know, is good as long as you can bring it back to parasympathetic, but like, they can't get back into parasympathetic. So right. like, it's kind of well, like, what, no, what, do you again, what do you initially do with that individual? But, I, I, I threaten them with physiology yeah. because it's the only thing that they pay attention to and they actually start making the behavioral changes in their lifestyle. It's the key. It's the key, yeah. I'm just forcing the issue on them. Like, no, like nothing is meaningful for them. 
except for this need to be able to um, to regulate themselves. So it's it's funny. They oftentimes tell me that they're like I'm in their head on the weekends, and I'm like, well, I'm sorry for that. That's that's tough when you're like a you know worth <laughs> half, half a billion dollars and you can do anything in the life. You're still thinking about me. But it's like um, they're, they they oftentimes do things like they they have less drinks or they go to bed earlier because they know that Monday is coming. So I just see that behavior change. Uh, it's it's a survival behavior is used to increase the uh, advantage you have in survival on this planet and reproduction on this planet. Yeah. And you know if I'm going to change behavior, I have to threaten your ability to survive or reproduce in some ways. Uh, unless you're someone that's like got it all figured out and all together and, and you're already doing all the good stuff. And then now maybe it's time to talk about uh, some of those other realms. But just, just, just so you know, I, I'm not a millionaire and uh, I think about you all the time as well. So it's, it's not just limited to millionaires. Well, you know, it's uh, that's that's part of the magic. I oftentimes reference <laughs> reference Seinfeld and like, um, you know, if if I'm going to be compared to any Seinfeld character, unfortunately for me, it's probably going to be George Costanza. We have similar heights and builds, but um, and we're also quirky. But there's the great episode uh, where it's like he um, he just talks about how he gets into women's heads, and before you know they're singing like Costanza, almost like a, a jingle song. But, um, yeah, I, I, I do the same thing. I've got my little strategies of, of kind of planting seeds uh, for how I affect, affect change and get people thinking differently that I work with. Great. So, um, so, so, that's, so step one is uh, improve your oxidative capacities. Yeah. Um, and, go yeah, ahead. Because, go ahead. because of those things that you need. You need uh, inhibition capabilities. And you need a parasympathetic condition so that you can actually recover at rest. Now, number two is sort of like, uh, like it's coming one. in there because, you know, some people will hear that and then they're like, oh, I need to do six hours of aerobic training a day uh, at, at 70, at, like at my lactate threshold. And it's like, uh, now you're going to be completely screwed. So I, I sort of, I, I give people this. This information and number two that it's it's like you want to avoid doing high like excessive amounts of high intensity cardiorespiratory exercise that is of long duration. Um, so the reason that you would do that is that that researchers have seen that there's there's a if you dip below a threshold level of leucine in plasma samples that you will inhibit protein synthesis from being able to run mm. you'll you'll shut down translation machineries so you need to be able to have leucine in the plasma above a certain level and i don't know if it's causal or correlational but if it dips below and i don't know what the level is i, I think it's probably an n equals one kind of deal but long duration fairly high intensity cardiorespiratory exercise will drain those plasma leucine levels and they'll make it go below a number that would prevent you from being able to run your protein synthesis machinery. So I just say, like, look, like if you want to do aerobic stuff, uh, you know, think more in the lines of moderate intensity yeah. for maybe like 30 minutes to an hour maximally. Uh, think about planting yourself in a heart rate somewhere like, you know, 130 to 160 uh, and do it maybe two to three times per week maximally. So. Very moderate in all realms with aerobics to get what you're looking for, because if you go and again, I love that that quote that you have about the dose determines the poison or the medicine. Same same thing. 
um, do just enough. You, like maintain health at the baseline that you need to be able to drive performance. Don't don't do so much health related stuff that it it sort of dips into the performance bank account. Yeah, it, it's it's you know it's really uh, interesting you kind of mention that because the thing I wrote down just on the health thing, it's kind of like I just wrote here and made a note but just have enough health competency to to underpin yeah. to underpin your fitness. Because again, I've, I've spoken at length of this with James Fitzgerald too, and two of us, two of us are still like we're, we just kind of like shake our heads. It's like it boggles our mind that people still confuse fitness and health or sport and health. It's like, yeah. like as as you said in the last podcast uh, that Valenceskin and Robert Ramley, like, they were saying that elite elite level athletes actually there seems to be a, a, a situation where their longevity is decreased because of maybe the physiological costs that they put out during their athletic careers and it's just like yeah because sports are fucking healthy uh, yep. and it's actually something i've been talking about lately too with regards to non non non-contact injuries because for the last like i don't know number of years everyone's like non-contact injuries should never happen and i'm, I'm just like mm, sport is completely abnormal to the human species it's a fetus in in terms of our evolution so the fact that yeah. or, or the fact that organized sport is completely abnormal to our bodies Non-contact injuries make complete sense, and I didn't say I didn't, I, I didn't say we shouldn't try to diminish their occurrence. But when people like slay other coaches, they're like, "Oh, like they're having hamstring issues and this and that." It's just like, look at the world we live in. It's like circadian rhythms are out of, are like completely out of whack. Like just like the food people are eating, then like organized sport is like being around not even a century, and it's just mm. like that. It's completely foreign to our body. Like if you time warp someone. From back in the day, like a paleo man would just say that for now. I know people yeah. are there, and and you brought him there to like fucking a Patriots game or a, a, a rugby match or one of the hurling or Gaelic football games in Ireland, and they sat down and you didn't explain anything. To them. You just said, "Watch this." They would be like, "Why are they doing that? They 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 they're not gaining anything from wasting less energy. They're not getting sex. They're not yep. getting food. And also, how are these people so fast and big? Like it's right. just like you know what I mean. It's just like." Mm. So, yeah, and, and I'll tell you, if you time-warped people that played organized sports in 1925 to right now, they wouldn't recognize what, what's happening either. Yeah. Like, but, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's crazy, yeah. And there, yeah, there's, there's um, even, like, you know, if you think about, like, running a marathon versus aerobic fitness, they're, they're almost two dramatically <laughs> different things. Like, you know, who, like, and from a persistence hunting standpoint – you don't get any extra points for like catching the animal quicker necessarily. Mm-hmm. You get extra points by doing it the the most efficiently that you possibly can, yeah. which probably means that you're not living on that edge of aerobic and, and anaerobic. Um, you're but even trying to even stay... even science aside here, and just looking at this like from a observation standpoint, people who do chronic aerobic work look fucking awful. Yeah. Like they're yep. forty, they're, yeah. they're forty, and they look like seventy. That's just an observational thing I've always seen. Yeah, and again, it's it's at that very, it's at that that limit. It's on the edge. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. it's it's not the easy stuff. The easy stuff is still like you know, nobody's gonna look like that by doing spin class two times a week or something like that. It's you know, it's like the 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 moderation point. It's like if you want to be a freak in something, you're going to have to go to extreme measures in a yeah. certain area, and and there's going to be costs Trade, associated. It's with always that. going to be trade-offs. It's it's one thing yeah. in that book, uh, Essentialism by Greg McKeown. He's like, life is all about trade-offs, and this is what James Fitzgerald talks about too, in terms of like 
with the CrossFit athletes. He's like, you're getting all these health and wellness people telling these CrossFit athletes, oh, you need to, you need to focus on your health because health underpins performance. And he's like, that's horseshit. He's yeah. like, he's like, that is, he says, and the reason he's like, I've drawn bloods and everything from all these top uh, CrossFitters. And they're always in bits. He says, but what makes them great is their resiliency. They're resilient as fuck. And if you started, like, started really focusing, and he's like, of course, there needs to be like again a health competency. Like there needs to be a competent level of health to support their fitness. Mm-hmm. But, he, but he's just like he's like if you if you turn around to a crossfit and said, you know, if we did this, even though like your competitive edge might decrease a little, your longevity would increase a little. But they were like, fucking yeah. no way! I want to win the crossfit right. games. I don't give a fuck yep. when I'm ninety if my knee is sore or whatever it is, you know. So it's just a, it's a trade off. It's like I always say, look at rugby. Like rugby is not fucking healthy, man. Car crashes yeah. happen <laughs> over and over again. Or ice hockey, like fucking thirty miles an hour whacking into people. But it's like it's the price people pay for for the sport that they love to do. You know, like being absolutely a, being a fucking bodybuilder or a figure athlete. Like with the girls who step on stage and they don't menstruate, like they know what they're at. They know the trade offs. So it's yeah. just you just got to be careful with the with the information that you're feeding into a particular context because. This again goes back to like as well with nutrition too. Like for me, you're, you're either ever training or eating for four things: put on muscle, lose body fat. You're eating for performance, or sorry, it, it's the, you're, you're you're either eating or training for four things: putting on muscle, losing body fat, performance, or health and wellness. It's one of those four things. But you gotta mm-hmm. be care- you gotta be careful. You don't take context from one of those four areas and put it into another one of those four areas. So for instance. Trying to trying to put put a put a, a plan that's trying to optimize optimize pure health and wellness to someone who's trying to do something in a particular area of sports performance. Like that happened with the paleo people. They're all like crossfitters. You should just eat paleo, and they all start going like low carb. And there's all this thing about like spiking insulin and longevity. It's like, uh, yep. and then they all fucking started getting like adrenal fatigue issues and all this. It's like yeah, because you took something from this context, try to put it into that situation, and it completely blew the fuck up. Yeah. Don't you guys know that you run on sugar in your sport? Like it's yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's it's wild. And speaking um, of speaking of sugar, your your third step is to manage your insulin levels. Yeah, and and I think that that in this particular case, I would say that that really I'm using this example of insulin because that's kind of where my knowledge base was and, and my understanding of things related to inflammation. And um and and since really meeting Ben and reading a lot more of his stuff, like. I've just been exposed to to how many factors there are with inflammation, and and you could probably just say that inflammation is the root cause of almost all disease when you really mm. get down to it. Like, and trying to find out what the key driver of, of inflammation is is probably super critical from a health perspective. But um, you know what I'm pointing out with this one is that if you just look at people with chronically high insulin levels, they're probably people that are super unhealthy overall. Yeah. You know, and um, is it the insulin? I don't know if it's that. It's it's probably correlational, but uh, insulin does seem to be associated with increased interleukin six and reactive protein C. Those things are all going to cause oxidative stress, and and the key part of of that is that oxidative stress stress is going to shut down activity of protein kinase B, and if I reduce protein kinase B activity, that's going to be problematic for the mTOR pathway. It it needs that protein kinase B to be functioning to you know allow for the pathway that gets the mTOR to be able to to actually be working. So there's there's probably a number of things that are associated with inflammation, but the the other key is again it's this like dose determines poison or medicine. Uh, inflammation is also necessary Absolutely. to be able to 
actually drive a lot of these these yeah, um, yeah. these adaptations. So it's a lot of this stuff is age dependent as well. I know that um, you know for older athletes and and people that are training hard as they're getting older, they like if you're young, you can like inflammation is probably going to drive you to get huge and jacked and all that kind of stuff. If you're older, it can actually just prevent you from being able to move enough. Uh, a lot of these things are going to come down to just training volume. How much training volume can you actually handle? Um, and if if inflammation is shutting you down, you need to deal with that uh, because it, it could be a thing that's preventing you from being able to move enough, and it could be something that's interfering with the molecular pathways that we believe are critical yeah. for, for protein synthesis. So so manage that, but don't don't run away from it at the same time. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, and then there's number four, which is just saying, hey, you need to sleep, and I point out uh, growth hormone as being a critical part of that, and uh, the reason that growth hormone would be super important is that growth hormone binds to receptors at the plasma membrane, uh, and the receptors that it binds to are going to activate a secondary messaging system cascade response. And the, the pathway that I'm activating with growth hormone is called the JAK-STAT pathway. So JAK-STAT... So, so, so properly named JAK. JAK. I, I know, right? right? It's, <laughs> Couldn't make that shit up like... No, it works really well. Yeah, JAK, and it's kind of almost disappointing when you hear what it stands for. It's Janus kinase. But, um, you know, like... Like most of these things, and anytime you hear kinase, it's referring to an enzyme that works within a phosphorylation pathway. Yeah. And phosphorylation just simply means that I take a phosphate group from one molecule and I transfer it to another molecule. And when I transfer that phosphate from one molecule to another, I activate the next molecule in line. Um, and so these secondary messaging pathways or cascades it's it's always going to be this phosphorylation-based process, and the intensity of the reaction is going to grow exponentially as the phosphate goes from one to the next to the next to the next molecule. Um, but the JAK system ultimately uh, activates what's called STAT, or the signal to activate transcription. So the STAT molecule is sent from the plasma membrane to the nucleus, uh, and it opens the it, – it, it, well, it, it's, it's the signal to activate the, the beginning of protein synthesis and transcription mm. at the mm. nucleus. Uh, and, and what's cool about growth hormone is it also seems to open a portal uh, that, that it allows leucine to be able to move into the ribosomal region uh, at, in the cytosol so the ribosome is where translation takes place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so growth hormone is an interesting one because it, it has this dual function from the perspective of activating transcription and allowing leucine, which appears to be a critical piece for uh, mTOR in the translational machinery. Great stuff, great stuff. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, just, and, just, and look, just, like just, there's a million other things that are going to go yeah. along with sleep too. Like sleep is is a watershed point and things pour off of that, that roof. So I always if, say if, if, you, if you could bottle and sell sleep, you'd be a fucking trillionaire. You, yeah, that's a, as true a statement as any that's ever been said. Take a swig of this. What is it? Just take it. <laughs> you're going to love it. Trust um, me, you're going to love it. You're going to be jacked and wake up with a boner. 
<laughs> and, you just, and you just turn around the whole bottle's gone, did you just neck that whole bottle? Oh, oh, Jesus. <laughs> what? You, 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 you just, you, you, it's second you said boner, I was, I was gone. It was just, it was sorted. You had me at erection. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right, step, you know, step, oh, sorry, sorry, before we go step five, just, yeah. just a complete nerdy thing, just because of a bit more information, maybe, because these are the type of things where, when I was younger and I was listening to this, I'd be like, they're saying things, but I don't, I like if they explain what that is. Why does growth hormone not go past the membrane of the cell? Why does it need oh, a separate? Oh, sure, sure. Um, you know, there's two primary categories, or, or there's more than two primary of categories hormones. of well, hormones. Of hormones, yeah, I understand. But you, you kind of have like your big three of thyroid hormones, steroid hormones, and peptide hormones. Yep. And the steroid hormone and the thyroid hormone are fat-based. And mm-hmm. they that allows them to be able to pass freely through the plasma membrane of the cell. Because the membrane, um, just for this, because the membrane is a fatty, is a fatty substance. It's a bilipid layer. Yeah. yeah. So fatty versus a, a peptide hormone, which is made up of amino acids, can't freely pass through the membrane. Mm. So it has to have receptors on the plasma membrane in order for it to be able to activate things inside the cell. But what's interesting about that is that the peptide hormones seem to be more powerful than the others. Because when you activate these things starting at the plasma membrane, it's always these secondary messaging cascade systems that amplify uh, the magnitude of the effect with the more enzymes that are activated in the downstream passing of phosphate groups from one enzyme or molecule to the next. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's the thing I learned today. Yesterday, it was that the uh, patella was a type 1 lever. Now today, it's to know that there's more powerful effect with patella hormones. Um, just, just for the young, right. just for the young coaches, Uncle Pat is taking care of you. See, see the way, see the way, Absolutely. see the way I, I facilitate this. All right, yeah, number yeah. five. I, I like this, nice and simple. I would train hard. Yeah, um, if you're not loading things mechanically, there's no signal for for uh, transcription and translation machinery to actually uh, begin their work. So it seems as though, like you know, if you look into Wolf's law uh, regarding like bone bone changes and and it's it's all driven through piezoelectric flow um so i'm sending electrical information down the nerves that stuff is going to ultimately like dissipate in in every possible direction it doesn't just evaporate into nothingness um and and it's it's going to flow through every bit of connective tissue in the region of the body that's working Mm. and you know, when you, you know, if you read Anatomy Trains by Myers, he does a great job of explaining piezoelectric flow and how it leads to the depositions or the directions of, um, of things like collagen, uh, in a, in a given area. And you only have a restructuring or a protein synthesis response in the connective tissues in the direction of the flow of this piezoelectric activity. So, you know, how does this affect muscle tissue? Well, you've got all of, like muscle tissue is anchored to the extracellular matrix. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that matrix is made up of things like glycoaminoglycans, mm-hmm. GAGs, um, and other, other sugar amino acid conglomerations. Ground that, substance, not the kind of ground. Or- yeah, ground substance. That's a great, that's, that's the, the right word. Um, and, you you have proteins that are almost like train tracks or lattice networks 
that connect the extracellular glycoaminoglycans to the plasma membrane of the cell. And then you have intracellular structural proteins that run from the membrane of the cell to the nucleus. So the piezoelectric flow information that is going through the ground substance surrounding a muscle cell, that information is transferred via these train track-like protein networks that go from extracellular space to the sarcolemma plasma membrane of a muscle cell Mm -hmm. and from the plasma membrane into the nuclear region of the cell to be able to start the process of protein synthesis. So strain, mechanical strain, is always required to be able to get these systems up and running. Um, and so really, like, if you're not, if you're not threatening from a mechanical perspective, the tissue, there's no response. Mm-hmm. And I think for people to, to look more into that, like, uh, just go and Google mechanotransduction and you'll find a lot of information in regards to that. Um, so then we, we kind of move on to number six. And, um, and this one, again, it's, and we're going to kind of tackle some of the hormone-related stuff, but, um, you know, this one is going to, to talk about a little bit about IGF-1. So I start off the, the saying, like, you know, I try to eat quality carbohydrates and proteins. Um, and, like, this is where in that peri-workout time period, some of the, the research that's kind of present, and, and really, I, like, I pulled this from, like, the NSCA textbook, that if we have uh, amino acids and if, if amino acids are present in the local region of the working cells that you are using during a training uh, experience, you're going to see a higher level of IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor. Yeah. Uh, and IGF appears to be a dominant player both in mTOR activity as well as the activation of myogenic stem cells that are found in the basement membrane of muscle cells. So, you know, if you look at all of the different layers of muscle cell, you know, you've got kind of like the laminar layer and the basal layer and all that sort of stuff, like from a histological study standpoint. You've got the basement layer or the basal layer uh, of muscle cells. And in that layer, you've got stem cells or satellite cells uh, present. And those cells have the ability to, if I can activate them with IGF-1, they'll reproduce, they'll multiply, they'll they'll create daughter cells. Mm -hmm. And then they can migrate into the cell proper, like into the, the cytosol. And if I can get these former stem cells in the basement membrane to move into the cytosol, What's interesting is that they'll turn into new nuclei inside that muscle cell. Um, and that gives me more little factories to be able to have transcription taking place in. So IGF is almost like, I think of it, have you ever seen that movie Gremlins from the I 1980s? I haven't seen it in years, but I know you're going to, where they just start like multiplying. Yeah, you know, you drop water on them and boom, 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 boom. Yeah, they, they start popping out. So I, I just look at it like this is like the IGF is like the the water for gremlins. Mm. Um, if I if I uh, hit Gizmo with a dropper of water, he's going to pop out twelve little other mogwai. So you know if I can just introduce a high level of IGF to the local muscle that worked, it's going to activate all the the satellite cells, and I'll have more nuclei inside that that muscle cell. 
And it's just like muscle is a multi-nucleic – or sorry, multi-nuclear yep. tissue. There's, mm-hmm. there's many, many nuclei in there. And, um, you know, it's in terms of studying the differences between people that are taking steroids and not taking steroids, um, certain steroids, what they'll do is they're known to dramatically increase the number of nuclei that's found inside of a muscle cell. And it's believed that they do so through this IGF pathway. Um, so there's always this interplay between hormones and and we always want to reduce it to some level that's like easily digestible. But I, I think the jury's still out on hormones in terms of like their ultimate effects. Um, and I'm going to skip to a little bit of that discussion now because it's relevant with the, with the, the IGF topic mm-hmm. because IGF is super hard to measure. Most of it is going to be, uh, mechanic, mechano growth factor, MGF. And, and that's one of these hormones that's called an autocrine hormone. And autocrine hormones are, are those that are secreted by the same cell so, that ends up using it. So, so you have, mo- just for listen, you have autocrine, you have exocrine, you have endocrine, haven't you? Yeah, or, or I think the terminology I've used is uh, telocrine, paracrine, and autocrine. Oh, uh, they're probably yeah. the same things. Uh, paracrine yeah. means like para is in right Parallel, next to the yeah. other thing. Yeah, like so it's, it'll be like paracrine hormones are typically like hypothalamic pituitary mm, hormones mm, yeah, because yeah. the hypothalamus and the pituitary are right next to each, each other. other yeah. Telocrine hormones are the ones that travel a great distance to get to the cell that they're going to affect. But yeah. autocrine hormones is the same cell. Same, same cell, cell makes yeah. it, same cell uses it. Yeah. And therefore, it's not measurable in the blood. So we don't have really the easy sophistication to be able to readily measure that stuff. And it seems as though the, those, those hormones have this tremendously powerful effect on the behavior of cells from a protein synthesis standpoint. So we, there's many of us that are declaring the death of the hormone hypothesis in terms of driving uh, hypertrophy of protein synthesis. But I, 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 would, I have to do more of my own personal reading into it to, yeah, to really said, see you, what the explanations that, are. You said that too on our last conversation that you're, you're, yeah. you're, you're something you wanted to look into a little bit more. Uh, and I just haven't had time yet to, to really be able to dive into that. But, you know, I, I do still see, like, I think we can all agree that, that the direct effects of steroid hormones on, on, on protein synthesis are not as dramatic as we once believed they are. But these peptide hormones, particularly these autocrine um, peptides, they, they may be dramatically powerful. They're, they can be almost like the ghost inside the machine, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we just don't have the, the readily available ability to necessarily measure those things because we, we typically measure hormones by measuring blood. But what if the hormone's never in the blood? So what if it's bound to as well? So, you know, there's issues with all tests and saliva. You get the active, but you don't get the total amount of blood. You get like... You'll get yep. like a, a total amount, but you don't know which is active and which is bound. So they all have their their and sternum has its yeah, own. Yeah, there's there's well. drawbacks and on and on and on. Like so, it, yeah, it's 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 tricky. Um, and ben, I would, ben, ben Ben would be well able to tell us all the details of that. Yeah, I, I think, and he's got a few articles that really that deal with that pretty mm, well. Mm. I would say that the the linchpin before I completely abandon all things hormone hypothesis is the autocrine hormone conundrum that people just can't measure. Um, mm, interesting. Yeah. So number number seven is um, is just saying like 
you need to find some relaxation strategies uh, because if you can't get into a parasympathetic state, you're just never going to be able to shift into like anabolic working environment inside your body. Mm. Uh, there's a time to mobilize and there's a time to, to shut it down and, and rest and repair and grow. So, you know, staying sympathetic, constantly on and being under stress too often is just going to be the, the, the death, you know, it's the bane of, of being able to, to actually see gains. Um, so relax, have fun, enjoy your friends, be social. Um, if you don't have that, it's, it's funny because like the single minded obsession that would allow someone to be able to train, uh, is what separates a lot of people. Mm. You know, you, you have to have that element. Um, because I don't think normal people want to train in a way that's actually going to dramatically, change their physiology from a functional or structural standpoint. Then are they like, really, are they really normal people? Yeah. Um, but it's, it's like the thing that got you to the point where you're able to separate yourself from the pack, mm. the ability to, to not be normal, the ability to, to behave differently from 99.9% of the rest of the population can be the thing that ultimately limits you in the end because now you're isolated, you're alone You're always thinking about the thing that you're trying to improve. You're, you're essentially not able to shift yeah. and, and get out of it. So you need to get out of it. You need to have some ability to, to be a normal human being that shuts it down and relaxes and has fun. And is, like we are a social primate. And if you can't be social, you're, you're just in big, big trouble. That's such a powerful driver of, of autonomics. Yeah, you alluded to that uh, earlier on in the book. We talked about this in our first episode. Um, you were like, you know, it's just a four-day program, and you have three days off, and you're like, and I want you to, like, to enjoy those off days, like actually spend time with your loved ones and get into a parasympathetic state. And you were like, this is like really important for this program to work. Yeah. So it, it was something that, you know, you definitely put a, a, a primer on. Um, so listen, uh, like we always do, uh, like uh, to be honest, I'd rather just keep recording like more episodes, even if they're in one space out, and we can delve. Yeah. I, I love just delving into these a little bit. So for our, for our last, I got like 15 minutes. Let's uh, let's let's just start on the rate pressure product and uh, MVO2, and get into this concept of how you feel circuit uh, training, particularly when, it, when it's resistance based circuit training has this unique effect on developing not only the musculature of the heart but also the the diameter of that left ventricle. So we're getting a, we're getting this concurrent development of both concentric and eccentric uh, development um, uh, with the musculature of the heart. And you kind of you uh, talked about you know you get the marathon runner who gets the left ventricle uh, left ventricle hypertrophy to eccentric demands for the venous return. Then you have like mm -hmm. someone like a wrestler who has high isometric forces going on in their sports, so they get more of this concentric uh, hypertrophy of the heart where it's more of like the wall of the heart gets thicker rather than the width of the, of the, of the left ventricle diameter or diameter of the left ventricle. And then you get this someone like a cyclist who gets the best of both worlds. So maybe we'll just get into MVO2, rate pressure yep. product, this sort of hybrid adaptation to the heart that you kind of see from uh, resistance training. And then off that, this like psychological sort of benefit you yeah. like you like to see that that also gets from this from from this type of training with like when people get into these uncomfortable states so you got sure. got 15 minutes and you can ramble on there my man all right so i think that number one it's it's like i 
we we screwed up as an industry by not appreciating the degree that doing more aerobic modalities has has tremendous benefit mm-hmm. on on the fitness and the overall um, capabilities of the organism. And and I think that we all owe Joel Jamison a huge debt of of gratitude for for bringing our awareness back to that issue. Absolute and, le- um, absolute legend. I just want to say Joel Jamison. Yeah, and you know, so it's like I love Joel's talk on um, on how return on investment in training is probably a, a really important thing and that if you know if, if you think about return on investment you want to put the least amount in and get the most amount back and and there's two fitness parameters that have tremendous return on investment and those are aerobic fitness and slow speed strength you know it's like if if you do a little bit of strength training mm-hmm. uh, particularly with people that don't have that quality developed they're going to get dramatically stronger uh, versus if I just do everything I possibly can to just try to attack a vertical jump, I might make the vertical jump increase by like minute amounts, but nowhere near like the possibly like hundred, like 50 to a hundred percent that I can increase slow speed strength with a beginner. Um, and, and also the big return on investment from doing aerobic training as opposed to trying to target the phosphagen system for like uh, you know, really like physiological, chemical, observable changes. You know, I can only increase the amount of creatine I have by you know what, like a a, a small margin, twenty, thirty percent. Yeah. That largely comes not even through training, but through supplementation with with people that need it. Um, glyco- glycolytic changes are nowhere near as dramatic as the enormity of how much better you can get an aerobic system. Yeah, I remember. So, I heard Kerwin and Flat put a real good one time too. He says, if you were to look at this in a spectrum and like have genet- genetics as the head title, and then like have your phosphagen system, your your lactic system, your lactic system, your aerobic system, in in a hierarchy of what is the most trainable uh, out of these in terms of comparing against genetics, it was like the aerobic system kicks the shit out of the earth. Like the aerobic system is the most trainable one. Like whereas the other two particularly your alactic one, is definitely more determined by kind of like genetic factors than your, yeah. lactic, than your lactic. And then he's like, so aerobic is the biggest bang for book in terms of what you can truly really, like obviously you can change it or two, but in terms of the scope and the magnitude that you can change it. Yeah, so I think that's important. And it's something that I think is, is um, I hadn't considered before he mentioned that. So he he opened my eyes to 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 really like a, a incredibly important concept on that front. Mm-hmm. Um, so then it's sort of like, well, I know that this aerobic element is super important because I can actually change it quite a bit, but can we get more specific with what we're like our definitions, like actual measurable outcomes uh, and, and really like VO2 would be the measurement of your aerobic fitness, so to speak. But I, I I think that people get VO2, like, like what is VO2? Like you have to define it. And VO2 is defined by the Fick equation. And the Fick equation says that VO2 equals cardiac output times the AVO2 difference. So cardiac output is the heart rate multiplied by the stroke volume. And the AVO2 difference is the difference in oxygen from the arterial to the venous side of the blood. So how much oxygen is being extracted 
at the level of the capillary when we deliver it to the local tissues. Mm -hmm. And the more that the working, that the local tissues are working, the, they're, they're going to reduce the amount of oxygen present inside of themselves more, which increases the gradient, the concentration gradient of oxygen present in the capillary versus oxygen present in the tissue. So oxygen will fall down its concentration gradient faster and with at a, at a higher level. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to see less oxygen present in the veins. So the the difference the, between the amount of oxygen in the arteries and the veins would increase. So I'm always looking to deliver more and then extract more oxygen once it reaches the tissues that are going to be able to use it. So that's that's really what aerobic fitness is. Yeah. But people people fail to consider that the heart, which is the delivery system, also needs to supply itself. And um, and the MVO2 is the myocardial. Uh, volume of oxygen consumption. So how much, how much oxygen is the heart extracting from the delivered blood to itself? Mm. Um, you know, it's like you could have, and I think it's, it's something that we can kind of hang our hat on that would be like, you know, there's probably people from, from the parts of Africa that are the best marathon runners in the world that if I, put them on cross-country skis would become fatigued almost instantaneously because the muscles required to cross-country ski are different than the muscles required yeah. to run yeah. in some way, shape, or form. You know, uh, So they would not be able to display high levels of aerobic fitness in another modality. Mm. But they would have the potential to be able to display high levels of aerobic fitness in this new modality because their heart has undergone changes. Yep. It's undergone changes from either an eccentric hypertrophy standpoint, a concentric hypertrophy standpoint, or from a myocardial oxygen extraction standpoint, the MVO2 variable. So just, just for you go on there, so would you say that they have, in that case, the, the Martin Rue from Kenya, they have the central adaptations and capabilities to be great at cross-country, but they don't have the peripheral adaptations that's exactly it. Um, yeah, and, yep. and also the specific, I suppose, movement pattern. You know, the the skill also. You know, because there also is a skill element as well to the like. So their body doesn't know how to utilize oxygen in that in that movement pattern either, as well as the peripheral adaptations at the cellular level. One hundred percent correct. Yeah. So I'm just looking at it like, yes, we have peripheral adaptations, we have central adaptations. Can we please talk about the specifics that drive? the central adaptations. Yeah. And I think that people have done a pretty good job of talking about the hypertrophy elements of central adaptations, but they've failed to talk. I don't think our field has talked enough about the MVO2 component of central adaptations. Mm. And that's what I wanted to raise attention to in this, in this article. Um, so I think most people are familiar with this notion of eccentric hypertrophy where I'm increasing the, the volume of the ventricles, you know, it's a bigger chamber that can hold more blood. So every time the heart beats, I'm pumping out a greater bolus of blood to the system. Uh, and concentric hypertrophy is where I thicken the walls of the heart so that it's a more, it's able to pump out blood against a greater amount of blood pressure pushing back on the heart and, you know, sort of sealing the, the valve of the, of the left ventricle shut. I have to always overcome that pressure yeah. to be able to eject blood from the heart. 
So it's, um, you know, those are the elements of, of uh, hypertrophy of, of a heart. But MVO2 is actually the fitness of a heart. That is the measure of how fit your heart is from an aerobic standpoint. And, and the, a heart is basically 100% slow twitch oxidative muscle fibers. So it's probably the only type of fitness that your heart can actually demonstrate. Uh, and so let's, let's kind of define what MVO2 is. And myocardial oxygen consumption equals, uh, it, it's, it's, well, it's measured by measuring, it's, it's, it's estimated by measuring the rate pressure product is, mm-hmm. the, is the best way to put it. And the rate pressure product equals the heart rate times the systolic blood pressure. Okay. So now we have these defined uh, categories. Pat, uh, just so re- the, real quick for listeners, what's systolic mm-hmm. blood pressure? What, what do you mean by systolic blood pressure? So the, the heart is behaving in two states at all times. It's either behaving in systole which is the active contractile time mm-hmm. where the heart is, where the ventricles are squeezing blood out or it's in diastole, which is the relaxation part mm-hmm. of, uh, of cardiac behavior. So systole would be the high number in a blood pressure reading. Yeah, so if like you're 120 over 80, yeah. systole is 120 and diastole would be the 80. Yeah. So there's always pressure moving blood through the, the vessels. It's just that it's pulsatile in nature and there's a high pressure phase and a low pressure phase, and they correspond to the times that the heart is either beating, contracting, or the times during which the heart is relaxing. Um, so MVO2 would would be the number, like if I'm going to measure the fitness of the heart, I, I would measure it by measuring MVO2, but MVO2 is, is really estimated from this rate pressure product measurement which I can actually easily measure because I can always measure your heart rate and I can measure your blood pressure. That's, that's stuff that's, that's, uh, any lab can do that. Um, so if I'm like, I'm challenging, I'm going to challenge the heart, the higher your heart rate is and the higher the blood pressure is, the more I'm challenging the heart, you know, but it's, if you look at, at certain activities like, uh, marathon running, for instance, it's a high heart rate, but it's a low blood pressure. Okay, so I'm I'm only going to be able to make the RPP go up so high. If I look at weightlifting, it is a tremendously high blood pressure, but your heart rate is not elevated for all that long. It's going to be kind of like, you know, you probably do uh, three reps at most, and then you got six minutes break before you do it again in, in kind of your classical uh, Olympic weightlifting training environment. So their effect on the heart is at like either end of the spectrum. Correct. Um, yeah, you're, you've, you've typically got these extreme examples of, of one end or the other. But then there are some other examples that are kind of like, well, can you have the best of both worlds? Mm. And, and cyclists seem to tell us that you can. Because, um, you know, if, if I just – if I think about cycling, uh, like the Tour de France or something like that, I'm, I'm going to be pedaling. I'm going to have a heart rate that's elevated uh, in a – pretty high level for what up to like four hours or something in a stage and um you know if i'm running uh i'm i'm using a lot of elastic energy to drive the the show like i'm almost bouncing on shocks if i'm running there's not all that much of like uh, a constant muscular contractile property the muscles contract rare like for brief periods 
and then they they're they're not contracted after that. So you know, muscles when they're contracted act like clamps on blood vessels and close them, almost like mm. you're kinking a garden hose and then releasing it. The the blood the blood pressures that some white lifters and powerlifters get is like astronomical, isn't it? Yeah, you're talking three fifty over two fifty or something, maybe even higher. And that's when um, they bleed out their nose and their eyeballs and their ears and pass out sometimes. Hundred percent. So. It, with cycling, on the other hand, there's no elastic element when you're de- dealing with gears. Mm. You're under constant tension the entire time. So the muscles never – it's like I would say that running is a combination of of protein coupling and elasticity. But it's probably shifted more towards elasticity the, uh, in terms of what drives you along versus cycling, which is just constant protein coupling behavior and mechanical pulling of proteins. So it's it's always going to be creating some level of occlusion on the blood vessels. So by just for listeners just for listeners again, by protein coupling are you just talking about actin myosin coupling there? Yeah, the sliding filaments theory yeah, stuff. Yeah. But it's uh what's the right it's like a torque. It's a it's you're creating tension through torque as opposed to or you're creating your your working levers through torque as opposed to a spring. Hmm. That's, um, a, that's a great way. That's a great way to put it. And by the way, the, the reason why I'm just putting in kind of what seems to be redundant questions is that, like, when I was a 19, 20, 21 year old coach listening to this, I was like, I kind of get what they're saying, but could, what do they mean by protein coupling? Or what's, oh, what's, no, I think that's great. Like, it's just I'm, to give it a little I, more context. I, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, this, this, um, the, the cyclist is going to have constantly a, a, a higher amount of blood pressure during their sport as compared to the marathon runner. And, um, you know, you, you sort of look at the values of the size of a heart between different kinds of athletes. Mm. And, and what we see is that uh, a normal, untrained individual from the general population, who we usually designate as reference person, their heart is typically slightly more than 200 grams, and it holds about 100 milliliters of blood mm at the end of diastole. So like diastole is when you're filling the ventricle and systole is when you're working and squeezing that blood out. Yeah. Uh, so they, they're 200 grams in a, in a hundred, 200 grams is the size of the heart and 100 milliliters of blood is how much the ventricle can hold. If you look at an elite marathoner, their hearts typically weigh about 300 grams and they're able to hold about 180 milliliters of blood, mm. so about 80% more than your, your untrained gen pop person. Now, wrestlers, on the other hand, are going to have a larger heart in terms of grams compared to the marathoner. The marathoner's heart is 300 grams. The wrestler's heart is going to be about 315 grams, but the wrestler's heart, the ventricle, is only holding about 110 milliliters of blood. So they're only 10 milliliters of blood higher than the general population person. Um, now, cyclists, on the other hand, seem to have hearts that, from a grams perspective, are about the same as the wrestler, and from a volume perspective, are about the same as the marathon runner. So that's where we're saying they, that you kind of can have the best of both worlds in some ways. Um, but those are, you know, the wrestler and the, and the marathon runner are the classic examples of eccentric hypertrophy and concentric hypertrophy. And where I'm talking myocardial 
oxygen consumption, MVO2 or rate pressure product, the cyclist, the behavior of the cyclist would, would drive that variable to the highest level. And you're seeing that like because MVO2 is represented by the rate pressure product, which is the work of the heart. And the more work something does, the greater the amount of physiological adaptations that that tissue will demonstrate back to you. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's pretty clear that the cyclist's heart is actually doing more work than the other two examples that are being given in this, this, this case. So it's, it's just kind of like as I get to thinking, so I would say that it's just a more fit heart. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I think that that can have a lot of benefits to it. And, and I'm certainly not suggesting that the best way to train the majority of your field and court sport athletes is to make them do Tour de France style cycling. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, as was sort of illustrated with the plasma leucine and mTOR related pathway things. But I think that we can take lessons from that and think about applications of increasing the fitness of a heart in the training modalities that we use with athletes. Mm -hmm. It's a model to just think your way through things. So I I just look at a a lot of sports like American football or rugby or lacrosse or or hockey. And in in a lot of those sports, it's like there are elements of grappling that take place in the sport itself. You know, there's you're, you're running, you're changing directions, you're kind of constantly moving and then you're you're interacting with the body of another person and you're trying to alter the positions in space that you have relative to them and and give them a worse position in space you're trying to own space and you're trying to decrease their ability to own space so contact is going to be present and then there's going to be times where you have to create propulsive activity that would lead to higher blood pressures there's just a lot of examples where you're probably dealing with a moderate to high heart rate and you're changing blood pressure to be at fairly high levels for, for periods of time. Mm-hmm. So if I'm thinking about the, that combination, it's like, man, that sounds an awful lot like MVO2 and, and RPP. So I, I just look at it like, you know, if, if I'm, I think I need to express MVO2 and I need to express RPP in most sports. And I think that the times where I need to express it are often at critical times of a match. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's late in the, in the game or it's, uh, it's when the scoring plays or scoring opportunities are going to happen. And, and what I think is particularly interesting about this is that when the heart is challenged in that way, there's this tremendous amount of back and forth communication between the heart and the brain. And when the heart goes into these tremendously high RPP situations, you're going to see people present high levels of anxiety within that, that those conditions. So I, I, I use this quote by Darwin from his, um, his book, The mm-hmm. Emotions in Man and Animal, uh, because I think it's the most perfect quote to really drive this home. So, so Darwin says, when the mind is strongly excited, we might expect that it would instantly affect in a direct manner the heart. And this is universally acknowledged. When the heart is affected, it reacts on the brain, and the state of the brain again reacts through the vagus nerve on the heart. 
so that under any excitement there will be much mutual action and reaction between these, the two most the important, important organs, organs in the body. The body yeah. I'm looking at it too as you read it. You know, so this is that was written in 1872. Um, so I, I feel like he was, uh, you know, he 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 did a couple of good things for us from a scientific standpoint. <laughs> I think he was, was away. He was away ahead of us in a couple of things. Yeah, you know, he he was decent, um, but it's it's kind of like. You know, those notions of the, the bi-directional communication between the status of the heart and the status of the brain through the vagus nerve is, is part of the foundational stuff that's, that's present in Stephen Porges' book, The Polyvagal Theory. Yeah, and you, um, you, you note that too in, that, in the same paragraph that you feel that a lot of what Darwin stated is also covered by Steve Porges in, in Polyvagal Theory. Yeah, so it's super hard to just like, you know, quickly, uh, talk about the, the, the importance of the, the model that Porges puts forth in the polyvagal well, theory. I, I, I'll, te- I'll tell you what, because time is actually up here. Why, why don't we, okay. leave, why, why don't we leave it here? And we'll pick it right back up here with RPP and you can get right into as much as you want about polyvagal theory. I mean, as I said to you, there's, there's so much like, like the thing about mass too is I think a lot of people think that it's just it's a book with a program in it like you know um, yeah. whereas like no 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 like I'm <laughs> I, I, I'm saying to Pat that I'm doing a lot of stuff in biomechanics physiology at the moment and like I actually like I'm, I'm like learning just as much about physiology from this book than I have in my physiology and on my college course it's complimented you know what I mean uh, I always, I always tried to sneak that stuff in, Rob. Uh, like, I think it's just, you know, well, that's the stuff I love to talk about, and, th- and that's also too why during the their podcast here, I'm trying to make sure that we, uh, like, uh, uh, like it's for the advanced person and, and also that the novice is kind of getting a little bit of introduction to some of these concepts. That's why I was asking some of those, like, you know, what is static yeah. pressure and stuff like that. You know, and, and I think even for the advanced person, like, we need to have the right starting assumptions to frame a discussion. Because oftentimes the the message that is received can become extremely divergent from the message that's intended to be received, because the starting assumptions are are, are not even remotely close to each other. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if we can begin the discussion in the same place, then the right message is oftentimes, um, you know, what the intended message is corresponds with the received message much more closely. Absolutely. Listen, uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Obviously, stay on for a quick second, and I'll say my goodbyes to you offline. So, guys, this is uh, Mass 2, Part 2, or as I was saying in my head today, Part 2. I've seen that there. I was like, Mass 2, Part 2, Robbie and Pat, get it on. Uh, so uh, actually, maybe I should take out that last word. If that was if that was the sound with Robbie and Pat. No, Gale, that's that's perfect. That's uh, gonna really that's provocative. Bro, it's, it's provocative. Gets the people going. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Everyone knows. Blades of Glory, people. Blades of Glory. I know. I, I you you know your '80s movies, Pat. I know my '90s movies. Outstanding. Yeah. So listen, uh, guys, absolutely classic episode again. Uh, it says an hour and forty eight minutes here that we've been on Skype, but the podcast, I think, I think we started fifty minutes in because we we always fucking have a great conversation yep. beforehand. But uh, for now, guys, uh, everybody, I hope you really enjoyed this because I absolutely could talk to Pat for the rest of my life, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> 
um, past probably you know it, 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 it's the novelty will wear off. That's my wife. That's my wife. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, for everyone listening, thanks for listening. I will talk to everyone soon. But until the next time, uh, take care, be well, and as I always say at the end of every show, stay strong because strength it's important. All right, see you later, guys. Thank you.